the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Heavenly Father, as we look at the church, though logistically looking very different these days during shelter in place and a global pandemic, we're thankful that we are still the church. But as we look into your word now, as we continue your teaching through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, may we be mindful of whose church it is in reality. That all may play a part and all may have the right theology, but also the right an energetic, faithful outworking of the reality of whose church it is. Be with speaker and listener now as we look into our continued study of First Corinthians. Teach us, grow us, but most importantly, Lord, glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the sermon this morning is entitled, Whose Church Is It Anyway? It's a good question to ask. Whose church is it? I'm talking about the local church, and this morning for us, Grace Church of the Bay Area, whose church is it? We know our theology, we know what the scriptures say, and so we default to saying, well, it's God's church. It's not my church, it's not her church, it's not his church. It is God's church. But isn't it your church also? Isn't it my church as well? It's true that we answer this question in many ways, it is semantics. But let me give you an example. If there's someone you've been sharing the gospel with for weeks and weeks and months and months, and they finally say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to hear, and he does some research on his computer, unbeknownst to you, and he comes across the webpage of Grace Church of the Bay Area, and he pulls you over to his desk at work, and he says, hey, I, I think I want to go to church with you someday or join the live stream. Is this your church? It would not help them in their understanding of which live stream or which church to join if you say, no, 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 it's God's church. That's not what he's asking. And so, again, I understand a lot of it is semantics. But we can say, yes, that's my church. That's the church that I attend. But what does that mean? If we allow that it is fair to say, yes, that's my church, that's the church I belong to, I attend, I'm a member of, that, then that says a lot more. Yes, it says that we worship God at this church because ultimately it is His church, capital C, universal church, but also His church, the local church, the thousands of local churches in the world. But it is also your church. That also means not just that you attend it, but that that's where you serve. That's where you fellowship. That's where you tune in on a Sunday morning or you attend on a Sunday morning hopefully sooner than later. Is it Roger's church, the church planter, the pastor? Yes, but in the same way that it is your church, again, defaulting to it is God's church. So that can be very confusing. Yes, we want to say that it is God's church in the context of who is sovereign over it, but perhaps more practically in the context of 
false teachers and cults that would say the church belongs to a certain human individual. But also within a practical context, practical context of us serving and living out our faith within the local church, which, by the way, a strong point for the, the centrality of the local church versus parachurch organizations is that in the scriptures, everything is assumed or given to be through the local church, the church structure, your service. And so for us in the practical way, when we say it's my church, it's where we serve. And we need to be faithful to that. And so maybe how you answer that, that question, whose church is it anyway, maybe within its context of the conversation, maybe when you're getting too familiar, where you're starting to boss people around, when you're starting to rely more on your strength or look to the pastor instead of the Lord, you've got to remind yourself it's God's church. But maybe in a context where you're being lazy and you kind of sit back and you just attend and you don't serve, you don't give, you just listen and attend and be anonymous, you need to remind yourself, well, no, this is my church and I need to step up and take ownership and do something. And so in many ways it can be confusing. And I believe this week and next, as we unpack verses 5 through 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we will get some clarification of that question Whose church is it anyway? But first, let's read the passage. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? And we'll be looking this morning and next at verses 5 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Over the next two Sundays, we'll be unpacking this passage. And as I first looked at this, this, uh, this paragraph, this section of scripture, in preparing the sermon, I wanted to give you uh, three points, three points about the church to answer that question, whose church is it anyway? But as I studied a little more, I was able to, uh, to, to push those three Three truths, those three points into seven. So over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at seven realities. Seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. Seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. The first reality is the agents of salvation. The agents of salvation. And we see this in verse 5a. By the way, if you're not familiar with that terminology, maybe you've come across it in a commentary or a blog or something like that, where they'll put a verse number like verse 5 and they'll say 5a or b or c. If there's an a, there's going to be a b, there's possibly a c or a d. Now, if there's a 5A and a 5B, that doesn't necessarily, it's exactly halfway. It's just an indication that they're piecing 
that verse apart into more parts. That's a side note. Just want to clarify that for you if you've ever read that or heard that before. So we'll be looking at this first point, the agents of salvation in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the first part of 5, verse 5, 5a. He writes, and I'll read this for you again. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. By way of review and reminder, what we have come to in 1 Corinthians 3 is that Paul has been addressing the factions, the divisions within the Corinthian church. And those factions are under, by name, the the men aren't doing this, but they are uh, talking about the faction of Paul, the faction of Peter, the faction of Apollos, even the faction of Christ. And there have been those who have been doing this by claiming a sort of allegiance or special relationship to various leaders of the church, again, including Christ himself. And they did this thinking of this as some kind of special or elite spirituality. I am better than you because I am of Peter. I am better than you because I have a Paul. Oh, no, no, no. I am better than all of you. I am above the fray by being of Christ. But in doing this, even in the faction of Christ, the Corinthians are actually exhibiting the opposite of an elite form of spirituality. Paul confronts them on this sinful and selfish behavior. Yes, though it sounds spiritual to them, it feels spiritual. In reality, it is selfish because they are trying to put themselves above other people within the church. They are feeding their egos. And this triggers in Corinthians a lengthy explanation that took us many months to unpack a lengthy explanation of the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. And it comes back to the issue at hand by explaining that they are actually following the wisdom of the world by creating these factions within the church. It doesn't matter that they are claiming spirituality. It doesn't matter that they are doing it in the church. It doesn't matter that it's not about politics or money but about different church leaders it is still worldly wisdom it is using the means of the world to do what the world pursues ego and all they're doing is trying to outdo one another and it's so bad that paul says by claiming different people even himself paul And by causing these factions, creating these factions and causing division, as we saw last week, he calls them spiritual infants. You're big babies. He's saying, I can't even teach you more advanced truths of Scripture, of how you are to live your life in light of the gospel because of this. You're childish. And their selfishness is exhibited in this jealousy and strife that is keeping them immature and unable to digest biblical truth. Specifically, in verse 4, Paul said, you are acting like mere men. You are acting like those who do not have the Holy Spirit. You are acting like non-Christians. Whenever they say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos. Now remember, in the context, we know that Paul has called them brethren, he has called them believers, he has explained how they are saved and have received the Spirit. So though they are acting like non-Christians, they are indeed Christians. 
And specifically, again, when they say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos. And these two names come up because Paul planted the Corinthian church, I am of Paul, and led many of them to Christ. And then, remember, Apollos took over as their pastor. And we see this in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Now, picking up on that theme, Paul begins by clarifying exactly who or what Paul actually are to them in our passage for this morning. He says, who who or what is Apollos? Who or what is Paul? He says in verse 5, we are servants through whom you believed. Now, this is a big deal. First, servant. Servant, in the ancient word, was not a flattering title. It was not a flattering picture. Now, you have to understand this. This is 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, within the Greco-Roman mindset, no one wanted to be considered a servant. Now, today in the church, that's a good thing. It's a noble thing. We all want to serve. We all want to be servants. But in their cultural context, it was not a good word. The word is diakonos, from where we get the word deacon. And in the Greek and within the context of the New Testament, it means servant or helper or minister or messenger. And you know what the picture would be of when the Corinthians hear this word? A field hand, a plowboy, a water boy, someone who's engaged in manual labor, not even the farmer, not even the guy who takes care of the animals, but just someone who helps the help, a servant. Now, a plowboy or a water boy on a, in a farm are necessary. They're very important. They're very helpful. But they are still just servants. And we know that Paul uses this word of himself and others quite frequently. And the reason he uses such a lowly term culturally of himself is this. Because he has an accurate a.k.a. biblical view of himself, of his role. See, the word servant controls Paul's understanding of his relationship to the Lord and to the gospel. To the Corinthians, Paul is saying that their veneration of him and Apollos is misguided. It is misplaced. They are just servants. They are just people. Whether while they are living or after their death, they are not to be lifted up any more than just someone who served the Lord. Yes, they are important to the point that they were the intermediary agents through whom the Corinthians believed. They were the means by which they came to salvation, but they are mere servants. They definitely are not leaders of parties or factions. Even though they were the ones who led the Corinthians to Christ, they were not the source of salvation. They were not the ones who hung on the cross. They were not the authors of salvation, the ones who came up with the plan of the gospel. They were just the means. They were the hose through which the water flowed. And this is huge. Even as we look back at where we are today, 2,000 years later, we understand through the book of Acts that what these men did were foundational, not just to those individual churches, but it was foundational to the universal church. 
We, through, through the work of Paul and others, we clearly see what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to leave so that you can do even greater works than I did while I was on earth. The establishment of the church. A ragtag bunch of people following this someone, this person whose blood has barely even dried in the tomb. It's a new religion. And here we are, 2,000 years later, in a global pandemic, preaching through the internet to hundreds of people. This is huge. But just servants. Even more specifically, Paul is saying that they're boasting in church leaders. Not Doesn't just miss the point of who Paul is, doesn't just misplace their priorities in regards to their view of Apollos. When they boast in church leaders, it misses the whole point of Christian ministry. Keep in mind, Paul and Apollos didn't do it wrong. They weren't doing ministry wrong. They were faithful. They did it right. It was the Corinthians' error in venerating, almost worshiping these people. All that the Corinthians pastors were doing was fulfilling their privileged role as given by God. And that leads us to our second reality to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. And that is the appointment of service. The appointment of service. We've seen Paul and Apollos, the agents of salvation. Secondly, the appointment of service. Look at verse 5b. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. It's interesting the terminology that Paul uses. He's later going to say, we're nothing. All we were were the agents through whom you believed. As if that was something small. But what he's talking about is in comparison to God. And here he starts getting to the point. Paul and Apollos were the agents of the Corinthians' belief, but it was the Lord who assigned them to that task. The word Lord brings in the real object of worship. And Paul is saying, look, if you want to give someone a level of status beyond others, then Corinthians, don't give it to me. Don't give it to Apollos. Definitely don't give it to yourselves. Give glory where glory is due, and that is to the Lord. And this phrase he uses, the Lord gave opportunity. Or in the ESV, he assigned to each. NIV, assigned to each his task. He's talking about roles or ministries in the church. The things that we all are supposed to do, they differ for everyone. Some of them, they are the same for all Christians. But within the local church, your ministry may look different than mine or or Dennis's, or Chris's. And he's saying, we led you to Christ, but only as the Lord appointed to each one. Paul is saying, sure, we led you to Christ. If it wasn't for us, you wouldn't know the Lord. I planted the church. Apollos was instrumental thereafter. But we only did so because of our God-given, God-ordained task in the church. 
The reason you wouldn't have come to Christ if it weren't for me is because God chose me specifically, Paul says, to be the agent through whom you believed. Thus, the term servants. Servants as God has assigned. Servants as God has sovereignly placed in that role. Are you the only one who can do what you're doing at Grace Church of the Bay Area? No, not not on a not on a talent level, not on a you know on a on an ability level. But are you the only one who can do that? Yes, because God has sovereignly placed you there to do that, and you can't thwart God's sovereignty. You are a servant. I am a servant. Paul was a servant. Apollos was a servant. We are just doing as God has assigned, as God has given opportunity and by using this analogy paul is hitting the corinthians right where it hurts you see their their party wrangling and self-promotion was completely in line with the cultural secular thinking of the day the greco-roman values of the day much like ours in america today sought to lift up and look up to leading figures of any and every field so that we look to them as the experts. And when that worldly thinking is brought into the church, it was for them, Paul and Apollos, who were lifted up. And we do this today. We even twist it so that people who have no business being considered experts of a certain field are now experts simply because we have venerated to the point of celebrity. What what difference does it make what a celebrity drinks or wears or thinks about opening the country? They're not scientists. They're not professional taste testers. They're not doctors. They're not chefs. But why does it matter? And you can see how all of this was even twisted in the minds of the Corinthians. They know it's all about God. And yet here they are trying to boost their own egos by lifting up Paul and Apollos to a certain level. But by calling himself a mere servant and pointing the praise to God and God's calling, Paul is inverting the values of the day and perhaps in an offensive way. Like his Lord before him, Paul is turning cultural values on its head. Stop lifting up individuals and just worship God. You know what this reminds me of? Although the context is not exactly the same. And we know from all of Scripture, I've said this before, and you know this just from your your own life, the Scriptures flip the cultural values upside down on on its head. And it's not some sort of recent book where someone's just just, just sick of the world and writes some book and say, let's do things differently. No, this this was written by the creator of the universe. This is how it was supposed to be. But because of sin, we started looking to self instead of to God. And it's gone so ingrained in the culture as, our, as, our, as the world's sin nature has stained everything. The word of God actually seems like a modern discourse against society. But... All it is, is Jesus telling us the way it always supposed to be. And so when we read it, 
And when we look at it, when we obey it, it's hard because no one in the world is doing what God wants them to do. And so as believers, we know how to do that. And so we're going against the grain of society, going against the grain of total depravity, but we are aligned with God's word and will. And that should give you hope and and give you encouragement to continue pressing on. Uh, But to the point here in 1 Corinthians or to the Corinthians, Paul is doing that. It's infiltrated the world, or excuse me, it's infiltrated the church. And so they're following the the world's values, the wisdom of man. And what I wanted to say earlier is it reminds me of Paul in Acts 17. You don't need to turn there, but he was in Thessalonica. And he was preaching boldly and effectively, as we know. But in that instance, and, and several others, the Jews formed a mob. These religious leaders, these, these religious teachers, they actually went to the marketplace and, and found wicked people so that they could stir up a mob, they could stir up a protest and accuse Paul and his colleagues of turning the world upside down. Isn't that fitting? That from the lips of the Jews, they said, this man is turning the world upside down. See, the the Jews had a good thing going. They had a cultural and religious status quo. But with Paul's preaching of the gospel, many were turning to Christ and leaving the legalistic ways of the Jewish leaders. Even those who were following idols, non-Jews, were accepting Paul's teaching. And then you go on in Acts 19 and Paul's in Ephesus and I quote, persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Verse 26, Acts 19. And for those who are non-Jews, his preaching was so effective that he was turning the, the, uh, the idolatrous world upside down too. So much so that when he was in Ephesus, the silversmiths who made shrines to Artemis, of whom Ephesus was the center of worship, they dragged Paul's companions into the theater, unable to find Paul, because their business was hurting. Because people were turning to Christ and no longer buying these shrines, these idols of Artemis. Paul's influence was great and powerful. And that influence that turned the world on its head was because he was, as we saw in the first point, the agent of salvation for so many. Yet he doesn't take the credit, but simply says that not only does the glory belong to God alone, but God is the one who chose Paul and gave him this responsibility. So give God the credit and not the lowly servant, no matter how powerful and effective they may be, because even their power and effectiveness is done by God through them. He's just saying, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant. Don't put me in part. Uh, don't, don't put me as a leader of this group that you've created. Don't swear allegiance to me. Don't paint a picture of me after I die and put me on the wall and pray to me. I'm just a servant. Give God the glory. I mean, before all of this 
pandemic stuff happened, and hopefully again later. You, you ever go to one of those uh, fancy restaurants out in the city? A critically acclaimed Michelin-starred restaurant. And always has the the menu printed out for you. And oftentimes these restaurants, the, the menu is freshly printed. It changes day by day, season by season. Sunday, May 17th, 2020. And right under there is the name of the busboy. No, it's the name of the head chef. And when you walked into that restaurant, you didn't see all these pictures lining the walls of the foyer of all the celebrities who have dined at that establishment shaking hands with your waiter. No, the pictures of the celebrity shaking the hand with the head chef, the boss, the one who is in charge. And when the waiter brings you your meal, he often explains the dish. And he intros his explanation by saying, well, this evening the chef has prepared for you a lamb such and such and such. He doesn't place that delicious meal in front of you and say, well, this evening your busboy will be collecting your dirty dishes and crumbs. No. Is the busboy's job important? Of course. Otherwise, when you sat down, your table would still be dirty. There'd still be a paid check and a tip and crumbs from the last diner's bread. Very important, but he's not the most important one. He's not who gets all the credit. It is the chef. And so what Paul is saying is in the same way, don't worship Paul, don't worship Apollos, don't worship Sprawl, MacArthur, Tozer, whoever it may be. They are merely doing with joy and fervor what the Lord has given them opportunity and assignment to do. To do. Now, in these first two points, the application here for us is twofold. On the one hand, understand the one who is in control and hands out the assignments. In other words, worship God and not man. Encourage and appreciate those who serve, of course, but give glory to God. On the other hand, take hold of the opportunity or assignment that God has given you. That's not to say you have an official ministry in the church, like church planter, pastor, deacon, usher, even a refreshments coordinator. But as a believer, you have an assignment. God has called you to himself, and in that he has given you something to do. Well, what is that? I can't necessarily answer that for each and every one of you. But for one, I know this. What is your assignment? What has God called you to do? Well, when you look at what the Apostle Paul is saying about himself, it's really the same thing. If there are any non-Christians in your circles that you know, what your assignment there is to share the gospel. That's all Paul did. And by God's grace, you may be the agent through whom someone believes by being the messenger of the gospel to that person. There's, a, there's one of your primary assignments. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's assignments that we all have that don't change whether regardless of, of your gender or, your, or your, your physical role in a family or a workplace. Things like love one another, confront sin, encourage, admonish, those types of things. 
But then in terms of your specific role that may be unique to you, that moves on to using your giftedness and your resources. Don't just, don't just plan your schedule and budget and look at your, how much money you have in, in the bank and, and look at your hobbies and your talents and then look at, oh, what do I want to do in my house? What do I want to do uh, uh, today for my, my, my pleasure and my free time? No, uh, take stock of your resources and then say, because of these resources, because I like to do these things and I do them well, because I've been educated in this field, because I am able to do this, because I am self-taught and able to do this. Can you do that for the church? Because I have this much money and this much time, can you use them for the church? Right now, today, can you get on Zoom? Can you get on your cell phone? Can you call someone, encourage someone, pray for them? doesn't matter if we're meeting together or not. You know, in some ways, maybe it's good that we're not meeting together because sometimes we get in the mindset, we leave church, especially if we're introverts or we didn't get a good night's sleep the night before. We are exhausted by the end of Sunday worship. And we're like, well, I'm done. I've fellowshiped. I've encouraged. I've, I've, I've smiled eating that, that person's baked good that was clearly not right. I'm tired and we feel like we've done our ministry. And then from 2 p.m. on Sunday through the rest of the week until 10 a.m. the next Sunday, we, we haven't done anything for the Lord. We haven't done our, our assigned appointment. We need to take stock of everything that we have and say, how can I serve? Can I do this for others? Can I do this for the church? Can I do this for the Lord? Because you know what you can do? You can turn on Netflix. You can sleep more. You can get the rest that you claim you deserve. Look, you you know me. I'm not saying you shouldn't rest. That's very important. There's a theology of rest in the scriptures. I'm not saying you can't watch TV discerningly, but watch TV if you must. I'm definitely not saying don't spend time with your family. Don't take a breather. But you and I both know in our heart of hearts that we do it more than we need to. We, we, we shut up our consciences that tell us, listen, you got to call that guy. You got to call that guy. You got to reconcile. You got to encourage. Now, push it back. Go to streaming. Zoom with friends outside the church or whatever because, you know, there's no ministry there. It's just fun. I understand the temptation, but we need to serve. And, and I guess what I'm saying underlying all of this is you can't sit back and say, well, uh, I'm good with tech, but Pastor Roger doesn't want me in his house, so I'm not going to help him set up the live stream and this and that, and there's no refreshments right now. And, you know, or, or some of you may be thinking, I have no assignment in the church, but you do. You do. I may have not asked you to do anything. A deacon may not have asked you to do anything. No one in the church may have asked for anything, but you know what you are capable of. And the capability is not just what you've mastered right now as I speak. Your assignment may be what you realize is that you can do better. 
you have the time to learn something new. We're a young church plant. Most of the people who do things that require some sort of learning or background or education, they learn because, not because they already knew how to do sound, for example, and said, well, this must be my assignment, but there was a need, and so they learned how to do it. That may not be the situation for everyone. You, you may not be able to learn that or be, be gifted in a certain area, but you have time. You have money. And this goes back to living the way you're supposed to live. Some of you don't can honestly say, I don't have the time to do that because you're not living out the basics. Your home is not in order. And so you or your spouse are doing everything. So of course you have no time for the Lord. Of course you have no time for the church because you're not even living out your biblical role of husband or wife or mom or dad or child. As I talked to the kids earlier this morning about responsibility and helping around the house and at the church when we reopen. That's why all of this is important. You're not going to know and hear what God wants you to do, I don't mean audibly, you know that, but to know what God wants you to do unless you are faithful, unless you desire to serve others, unless you love, unless you put others first. You will accomplish much. You will get a lot of things done at home. You will make more money. You will get those projects around the house done. You will organize your closets. You will do all of those things. And to a certain degree, that is important. But we must understand that God called us, saved us, died for us, not just to serve ourselves, but to fulfill our roles within the church. And if you are failing in either of those areas, by worshiping men, as the Corinthians were doing or on the cusp of doing, or failing in your service, or lack thereof, the root sin is the same. You are not acknowledging God's preeminence in your life. Do you see that? If you're worshiping a man, or a woman, or whatever it is, venerating, lifting up, unduly, you don't see God's preeminence in your life and in that person's life. If you're not serving, you don't see God's preeminence in your life because you don't feel the conviction or the need to do everything within your power to serve God faithfully. And so if you're failing in either of those two areas, I would start there. Worship God, high view of God. Well, let's move on. Seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. We've seen the agents of salvation. We've seen the appointment of service. Thirdly, the activity of success. The activity of success. Look at verse 6. Paul saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. The church as a whole throughout human history has been successful. As much as we like to critique and criticize uh, I even had a faithful brother who said he thinks that after uh, a shelter in place, I guess because of technological reach and finances or, or something else, he said, 
He thinks if things don't open up soon, that only the, the, the mega churches, the churches of a couple thousand or more are going to survive. And I just texted him back. I said, my church is going to survive. And people like to critique. They like to criticize. They, they like to be negative about the church. But the reality is the church exists. The church is strong. The church is powerful. And the church has changed the world and will continue to do so. The success of the church is due to the outworking of God's plan. And that's why it's successful. But understand, again, that God's plan involves various roles and activity among his children. And that starts with every Christian doing their part. And in this particular instance, Paul planted the church and Apollos watered. Of course, the analogy comes from farming. Paul planted the church. He planted the seed. He started the church. Not administratively back then. He didn't find a building, write the bylaws, and get tax-exempt status or whatever. But what we, saw, what we saw was in our first point. He was the agent of salvation. He started the church and that he was the one who preached the gospel to them. And we know that in Acts 18, it tells us that he taught there for 18 months. He led people to Christ and then he taught them the fundamentals of the faith, giving them the foundation of their faith and Christian living. Then he continued his ministry, as you know, which involved moving place to place. Then Apollos took over. He became the Corinthians pastor. He taught them. He shepherded them. He discipled them. That's the watering that Paul is referring to. And in farming, as in the church, planting and watering are crucial. They are very important. They are huge services. They should never be minimalized, but they are pointless without God. And that's what Paul is saying here. You can throw seed and some dirt. You can find a name for a church, as generic as it may be, like Grace Church of the Bay Area. You may file some papers with the IRS. You may rent a school cafeteria. Important stuff. Throw a seed in the dirt. Then you can water it. You can preach. You can teach. You can disciple. You can teach small group. You can teach women's group. You can lead men's group. You can teach fundamentals of the faith. You can teach a membership class. You can water it. Very important. But you or I will never, ever make it grow. God does that. Not even the greatest farmer horticulturalist or scientist can give life to a plant. You see, they can modify a seed. They can make the best dirt. They can create some sort of chemical fertilizer. But only God creates life. And that's what Paul is saying. In other words, no matter how well you plan, no matter how much you water, no matter how clearly you teach, if God does not cause it, it will never be caused. If God does not cause it, it will never be caused. By the way, this is fantastic. The words planted and watered that Paul uses are in a tense in the Greek that indicates that the work is done. Paul's work is done. He planted. Apollos' work is done. He watered. Not that it's 100%. Not that they don't need more teaching, but that Apollos' job was done completed their assignment in the past. However, the Greek word that is translated 
causing the growth is in a tense that indicates continuous action. God is still causing the growth when Paul wrote this. And in the larger scale of the universal church and every local church that exists today, God is still causing the growth. He is at work. Pastors, preachers, servants, people, they come and go. They live and die. But God's work continues. He's here to stay. Again, a planter and a water cannot cause growth. But they can destroy a field. And they can stunt growth. Many of you came to our church because you experienced that. And if there is a rivalry between the workers, you have a problem, as we saw in Corinth. The field, Paul is saying, is not a battlefield where the servants are to fight for supremacy. They must know their place and appreciate the immense privilege of being a worker in the field at all. Friends, there is no place for rivalry. And that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. What's the application for us? Work hard in your ministries, but rely on God. Inherent in that mentality is knowing that God is the one who causes the growth. No matter what the service is, the goal must be growth. It must be salvation. It must be spiritual growth. All our service must have the goal of planting and watering. We must make the, the, the church, the soil, right. We must do our part. And that even involves the small things. Is someone going to uh, kind of grow less or slower in their spiritual walk because... The back table at church is a mess. Probably not. But we're excellent. We, we tuck the papers together. We take out the pens that aren't similar. We make sure someone hasn't left their purse or their coffee there because we want it to look nice. We want it to be excellent so that we can facilitate unhindered worship. And I bring up that example because it's something that may seem peripheral or small. We we can start speaking in spiritual terms and say, well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we social distance when we get back. It doesn't matter if the, the rows are crooked. It doesn't matter if the words are cut off on the screen when we sing. We just need to worship. Don't you know we need to worship? Yeah, but all of these little things are doing our assignments well so that people can worship well. It's all part of the plan. And we'll unpack more of this next week. But the goal in everything you do, whether it's how you fold the bulletin or how you announce church discipline, no matter seemingly big or small is what I'm saying, the goal is that you fulfill your role of either planting or watering. And we'll unpack that more next week. So what is your part in all of this? It's not that God can't do it without you or me or that we can thwart his will through our laziness or disobedience or lack of excellence. We can't do that. But this is all about a realization of the grace of God to be a part of this work. God is so gracious to let us be a part of this work. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 
as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There it is. You, you, you utilize that grace. You show that grace by serving. What this verse says, 1 Peter 4.10, is saying that you have a gift. You need to use it. If you ever think maybe I don't have a spiritual gift, you're wrong. Because as sure as you're going to heaven and have the Holy Spirit, you have been given a gift. And then verse 11 just talks about doing everything by God's strength. Back to our context in 1 Corinthians. Even these men that the Corinthians are lifting up as heroes or objects of honor. We see how we all fit in God's plan as servants. I mean... Uh, think about it. Where did Paul start? I wanted you to look at these passages. We're running out of time, so I'll just summarize for you. Where did Paul start? He was a persecutor of Christians. He was one who truly was venerated among the Jews, and rightly so, in their world. I remember the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8. He was killed for his bold and faithful preaching of Christ. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 of his murder, it says, Saul, who was became Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. He was a murderer, a killer, a persecutor of Christians. So misguided and wicked was Paul that Christ intervened directly, speaking to him and saving him on the road to Damascus, thus becoming the great and powerful Apostle Paul. God causes the growth. Who was Apollos? In Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, he was a Jew, but he was an eloquent man. He was mighty in the scriptures, the Bible says. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in speaking. And it says, and I'll quote, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And he even, like Paul, went out to the synagogue and began to speak out boldly, teaching Christ. And then what happened? Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Even the great Apollos, whom God used powerfully in Corinth and elsewhere, needed other believers to correct his theology because God causes the growth. We need to be faithful and rejoice that God causes the growth. In other words, be involved in the activity of success, but know and praise the one who secures that success. We're all involved, but only God can do it. Well, We've seen three of the seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church, the agents of salvation, the appointment of service, the activity of success. Paul writes, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your goodness to us. We are so thankful as we have seen that not only are we privileged to be with those who serve you, to be a part of the church, 
but you have also given us the privilege of having the scriptures and having the examples of people like Paul and Apollos, and even the negative, sinful example of the Corinthians who were misguided and let the, let the thinking of the world infiltrate their church. I pray that you would guard us from that, Lord, not just the undue veneration of people, humans, but also just the, the root cause of what the Corinthians were doing. Seeking self, self-glory, self-edification, ego, to the detriment of others, but more, more importantly, the detriment of their own walks with you. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a church regardless of if we're meeting in person in a cafeteria or a hotel or meeting over the internet, that we would use our time wisely. I pray that you would make it clear to us what our assignments are within the local church beyond the obedience of the clear commands of Scripture. What are we to do? I pray that you would help us to avoid the sin of the Corinthians by being so focused on self that we use every second, every ounce of energy, every cent in our bank accounts only for ourselves. I pray that we wouldn't be people who just eke out a trickle of time, a, a trickle of finances, a trickle of our, of our abilities for the church, but that we would turn on the fire hose, as it were, and give as much as we can, sacrificially. Thank you, Lord, that we can say that this is our church because you have called us to it. You have given us the privilege to serve. And we thank you ultimately, though, that it is your church. You are sovereign over it. You are the one who, have, who has handed out the assignments. You are the one who causes the growth and will guarantee the success. And may we look to that truth for encouragement, for motivation to sacrifice, to a willful choice to see everything through the lens of Scripture for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.